I didn't even have to say good morning. Natural quieting down this morning. Welcome to um, the Chad uh, Neurology Mini Fellowship Pediatric Grand Rounds on February 15th, 2017. Hopefully everybody enjoyed uh, Valentine's Day and we'll uh, enjoy some more snow in the next day or two. We will welcome Dr. Richard Kripe as our Colin Stewart visiting professor next uh, Wednesday uh, for Grand Rounds, followed by a ABCs of Eating Disorders Conference here all day and blending right into the 27th Annual Dartmouth Pediatric Conference at Mount Washington. Are there still spots available, Joan? Still spots available up at Bretton Woods, and I think they're getting socked with another foot of snow today, so it'd be a good weekend to, um, to join us. Um, some of you have seen emails. Uh, are getting invited. Tomorrow night we will be making the cookie and ice cream rounds in celebration of the Solutions for Patient Safety, the National Hospital Engagement Network in which we participate and we're one of the first, we were, we were first 30 or first 40, Sam, in that, in that collaborative, first, first, first wave, first 40, uh, recognizing us as a top, Chad, as a top performing hospital for a, a, an incredible track record, a incredible run now, a streak of uh, of no um, serious safety events uh, we had had. Some may recall last winter an outbreak of uh, central line infections in the ICN, and the team rallied and um, identified uh, key processes and standard bundles to implement, and, and we're on really a very long extended run without central line infections or uh, uh, catheter-associated urinary tract infections and other key indicators. So, so tomorrow night I'll be scooping ice cream in the units, and um, next the 28th we'll be coming to the ambulatory spaces. And I think some others I'm looking at. I think Dr. Casella, I hope, will have an ice cream scoop and a wrist uh, a wristband. So, uh, good work to everyone. We hope to celebrate with you in the next couple of weeks. Today we welcome uh, the, the fellowship director for our CHAD Neurology Mini Fellowship, Dr. Wallach, who's also our section chief of pediatric neurology here. Uh, Dr. Wallach um, is a graduate of Yale College and Columbia University for his MD and PhD. He um, trained in pediatrics as well as uh, neurology pediatric neurology at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center's um, Babies Hospital and Neurological Institute of New York. He um, has a long and distinguished career practicing in New York, Maryland, and in New Jersey at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School prior to joining us as, as Chief of Pediatric Neurology and Associate Professor of Neurology and Pediatrics. Uh, I, I found it uh, impressive that in his time in New York and New Jersey, he was regularly noted as best doctors in New York Magazine and Castle Connolly. But something that you may rue me mentioning, Jan, is that he received from Robert Wood Johnson, UMDNJ, Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, the Pediatric Resident Award for precepting the most case conferences. So I don't know if Hillary's here, but um, we may have some talent in our midst. So um, Jan's going to give us an update as part of the mini fellowship on the latest and greatest in headaches. Um, such that we may all do a better job, and we welcome our friends at Manchester, Nashua, and Concord also, who should be on the VTEL. So, thanks, Jan. Okay, can everybody hear me? 
Okay. Thank you for that kind introduction, Keith. Um, today we're going to be talking about headaches in children and adolescents. And I've, the original title of this talk was an evidence-based approach, but actually when you look at the evidence, you realize that there's a lack uh, of uh, a lot of high-quality evidence. So we'll be looking at it uh, such as it uh, is. Uh, in terms of disclosures, I am employed here by DHMC, but I have no financial ties to the pharmaceutical industry and no conflicts of interest, and I don't think I have too many uh, skeletons in the closet. I will be talking about some off-label uses of medications. Almost all the medications used to treat or prevent migraines are not FDA-approved for that use in children. Some, such as the anticonvulsants, are approved for other uses in children, and some are only approved for other uses in adults. Some, such as the tryptans, are approved for use in migraine, but the lower rate of approval may only be late adolescence. The kind of uh, two big exceptions to that are almatryptin, which is Axer, which is uh, approved for uh, the ages of 12 and above, and uh, risotriptin, which is Maxalt, uh, which is approved for uh, the ages of 6 and above, and then sumatriptin is also has a uh, similar approval. I will be talking a little bit about nutraceuticals, which are obviously not FDA approved, but uh, in this day and age of the internet, uh, parents will ask about them, and all the ones I will mention will have at least one study in a peer-reviewed journal suggesting uh, efficacy. So back to the basics. How common are headaches in children? And the answer is very. At least 6% of adolescents report uh, migraine at least, at least yearly. And the prevalence of headache uh, runs roughly 37 to 51% of seven-year-olds, 57 to 82% of 15-year-olds. Girls pre-puberty, girls outnumber boys after puberty. The numbers for migraine, that specific you know, subclass of headache, is uh, 1.2 to 3.2% of three to seven-year-olds, uh, 4 to 11% of seven to 11-year-olds, and 11 to... Uh, 8 to 23% of 11 to 15-year-olds. And once again, note that in the younger age bracket there, males outnumber females. In the 7 to 11-year bracket, males equal females. And in the 11 to 15-year age bracket, uh, the uh, girls outnumber the boys. So when we look at headaches, you have two basic types. You have the primary headaches, where there's no specific cause other than possibly a genetic one. And then you have secondary headaches, where we know that there's an underlying cause. And some of the more common ones are subarachnoid hemorrhage, meningitis, pseudotumor, uh, trauma, uh, stroke. Uh, should never forget hypertension, uh, hydrocephalus, and occasionally mass lesion. And probably most interestingly is uh, postictal headache, which can certainly mimic uh, a migraine. So the first job we have as pediatricians in approaching the, the whole headache question is to distinguish the primary headaches from the secondary headaches. And one of the first things you want to do when you're thinking about is this a primary headache is does the description match one of the primary headache disorders? And the uh, International Headache Society did us all a favor by uh, coming up with an, an international classification of the headache disorders. And basically, the three types in that long document that are going to concern us are migraine headaches, tension-type headaches, and chronic daily headaches. 
The other thing we want to ask ourselves, are there any red flags? Any things that suggest that this is indeed a secondary headache? And the uh, important factors here are, is there an escalating frequency or severity over uh, several weeks to a few months? Uh, this especially uh, becomes more and more important in the younger age groups, um, especially if you're under seven. Is there a change in frequency or severity of a headache pattern? So if a person's been having headaches at a, at, at, in uh, X pattern for a number of years, then all of a sudden it changes and becomes a lot more severe and a lot more frequent, then that's a red flag. Is there any fever associated with the headache? Um, that's an important red flag, because obviously we're always worried about the possibility of meningitis. Um, that, is the headache accompanied by a seizure? Okay, primary headache disorders are not associated with seizures by and large, and so if you have one, then you need to be very concerned about a mass lesion. Is there any alteration in sensorium? Okay, once again, could be uh, the sign of a uh, structural lesion. And uh, one of the more key ones is awakening from sleep. Uh, by the way, if you ever have to argue with an insurance company about the appropriateness to get your, your prior authorization, awakening from sleep almost always works. <laughs> okay. So once you're done with the history, the physical examination can help you decide also whether it's a primary or secondary headache. Okay, and the vital signs, we've already talked about the importance of looking at temperature, but it's very important you look at blood pressure. Okay, for, for whatever reason, perhaps because we don't see that much hypertension in kids, people overlook this as a potential cause for, for headaches. And then you need to do a complete neurologic exam, paying particular attention to those features which, which can indicate increased intracranial pressure or a mass lesion. In particular, you want to look at, at the... Uh, Use your ophthalmoscope, one of the underutilized tools in the clinic, and you want to look for any signs of papilledema. You want to exa examine extraocular movements, right? Third nerve palsies, sixth nerve palsies can be signs of increased intracranial pressure. You want to look for any signs of ataxia. Similarly, can come just from increased intracranial pressure alone. Or, alternatively, it can come from a mass lesion. Remember that two-thirds of pediatric brain tumors occur in the posterior fossa, okay? And ataxia will be a, a key symptom. Any weakness, especially if focal, any sensory loss also, in case, especially if it's focal. And once again, increased deep tendon reflexes, okay? Can be a sign of, of early spasticity and similarly uh, reflecting uh, increased intracranial pressure. What about diagnostic testing? Well, here's our first real evidence-based uh, uh, information here. And there was a practice parameter issued by the American Academy for Neurology back in 2002 looking at just this uh, issue. And anybody who wants to look at it, uh, granted it's uh, 15 years old now, but it, um, the website is uh, there or you can just type AAN into Google and it'll take you to the website. Um, EEG, basically it's not useful. But if you do get one, be aware that there will be abnormalities in approximately 25% of headache patients, okay? And in 50% of migraine patients. 
And so if you actually go ahead and do this test, then you're left trying to explain what these abnormalities are to the patient or to their parents. And you may be tempted to act on them um, when you don't necessarily need to. Half of these abnormalities are actually spikes, which are you know, epileptiform as in the lingo. Um, but it does not indicate that the patient has or will develop seizures. So in those cases where I do end up, you know, ordering an EEG, I kind of prep the parent ahead of time, letting them know that we may very well see some abnormalities here, but that that's just reflects the migraine and not necessarily an underlying seizure disorder. Well, okay, how about neuroimaging? I mean, I don't think I need to convince this audience that if you're going to do some imaging, you're probably going to want to do an MRI scan and not a CT scan. But in this uh, practice parameter, they did do a review of a, a meta-analysis of the, of the uh, literature, and they came up with a total of six studies and a total of 605 patients who underwent imaging. Of those, they found 79 patients who had abnormal maladies not requiring intervention, things like arachnoid cysts, sinus disease, pineal cysts, and Chiari malformations. Whereas 18 of them, which was 3% of the total, had lesions requiring intervention. Uh, 10 of those were tumors, other ones were symptomatic vascular malformations and symptomatic uh, arachnoid cysts. So, they did look at the variables that predicted space-occupying lesions, and they found out that headaches of less than one month's duration, the absence of a family history of migraine, an abnormal neurologic exam, gait abnormalities, or the occurrence of seizures. So this bears a remarkable resemblance kind of to the list of red flags I showed you just a little bit ago with the addition of the absence of the family history of migraine. The overall recommendation was image if you have focal findings, size of increased pressure, seizures, altered consciousness, recent onset of headaches or change in your headache types. Once again, that's where, kind of where that list of red flags comes from. In this modern age, I go back and I look at those original numbers. Okay, 3%. I think 3% is a reasonable yield for a test if it's going to be something that's definitely going to need intervention. Okay, and you know, 79 had abnormalities that back then were not, you know, considered to require intervention. But we all know that in the modern era, uh, more and more people are finding it necessary to, op to uh, operate on Chiari type 1 uh, malformations. So you probably have an overall yield of more like 4 or 5 percent of your, of your imaging. Okay, so it is something you want to think about, you know, doing. Um, once again, I find that as I look through this list of conditions, one of the big deciding ones is that family history of migraine. Migraines tend to run in families. And you can, in a person who has migraines, you very frequently find a history of that in first degree relatives, mother, sibling, uh, a little bit less commonly the father. And uh, if you look a little bit further into aunts and uncles and grandparents, you'll be surprised at how frequently you'll come up you know, with that history. When I don't come up with that history, then I go back and I think about that 5% or so yield of imaging, and it sounds like a much more enticing uh, proposition. 
So in distinguishing primary and secondary headaches, to just kind of summarize, if there are no red flags found in the history, if the physical exam is normal, and if imaging is either not done or is normal, then the next step is to return to the history and decide if the headache meets criteria for one of the known primary headache disorders. And so then we need to know what those descriptions are. And as I said, in the International Headache Society developed something known as the International Classification of the Headache Disorders, ICDH. We're now in the second edition, although the third edition is now available in beta format. And it provides diagnostic criteria for numerous headache types. And as you can see, the original publication ran 160 pages long, and then they, they supplemented it with a few more pages of things they left out. Okay, the ones that concern us in, pe in the pediatric population are migraine, either without aura or with aura, tension-type headaches, and chronic daily headaches. And when we talk about chronic daily headaches, they can be chronic migraine, they can be chronic tension-type headaches, they can be medication overuse headaches, and then there's that special loved category, the new daily persistent headache. So let's look at migraine without aura. First of all, you're supposed to have five attacks before you get diagnosed. Uh, with it. And the headaches, at least in the adult population, last four to 72 hours. And the headache has to have uh, two or more of the following characteristics, unilateral location, pulsating quality, uh, moderate or severe pain intensity, and uh, aggravation by uh, routine physical activity. And then during the headache, you're supposed to have at least one of the following, nausea and or vomiting, and photophobia or phonophobia. And they always, the last thing in every description is not attributed to another disorder. Okay, with migraine, it's kind of the same thing, except that you also have to have an aura. And that aura can consist of, of visual symptoms with either positive or negative features, i.e. either bright lights or black spots, and um, they need to be fully reversible. The sensory symptoms are the next most common type of aura, and that, once again, it can include positive things such as tingling or negative things such as numbness. And, or finally, you can have fully reversible dysphasic speech disturbances. Okay, so your visual symptoms should be involve homonymous visual fields, okay, so one side of the visual field or the other, or unilateral sensory symptoms, okay, with no bilaterality uh, here. And at least one of the aura symptoms develops gradually over about five minutes. And if other aura symptoms appear, kind of successions over about a five minute period. And that the total aura lasts somewhere between five and 60 minutes. And otherwise, and then it's all followed, rather, by a headache which is very similar to the uh, one we described in migraine without aura. Okay. Well, those descriptions were originally written for kids. They needed to be modified. Uh, for adults, they needed to be modified for kids. And in part, we need to recognize that a very young child is not going to be able to give us the same description that the older child or adult is. But the other thing we need to realize is that duration of migraines in children tends to be shorter than in adults. And the range is one to 70 hours, but especially more in that short part of the range of one to four hours. 
The location tends not to be unilateral, but rather bifrontal or bitemporal. Okay, in the old days we used to use the terms common versus classic migraine. You still hear them batted around some. Classic is when the headache is unilateral, common is when it's bilateral. The nature of the pain, okay? An adult can usually give you a pretty good description of a throbbing, pulsating pain as opposed to a squeezing pain or a sharp pain or a burning pain. But young children will have difficulty uh, describing that. And similarly, young children will frequently have difficulty describing severity. However, due to the fact that most of them are school-aged, they're pretty good at grading things and using the, uh, asking them to grade the headache from 0 to 10 on at a uh, scale of 0 to 10, um, usually works. The associated symptoms, photophobia, phonophobia, and exacerbation by movement, first of all, you have to realize that they're frequently just not present in young children. And even when they are present, they may not answer the question directly, but you may have to infer it more from their behavior, i.e., when they have their headache, do they sit there watching the TV with the volume turned up loud? Well, that's a pretty good indication they don't have photophobia and phonophobia. If, on the other hand, they you know, go into their bedrooms where the shades are drawn and they hide their, their head underneath their uh, pillow or blanket, well, then that's a pretty good indication they are having photophobia. Um, remember also that difficulty thinking, fatigue, and lightheadedness can be consequences of migraine, so that if the child is complaining of those things, it's just part of the overall picture. In childhood, we do have some interesting things that we call migraine variants, okay? In adults, this type of symptom would be called acephalgic migraine, i.e. migraine without the headache. Um, but in babies, we can see paroxysmal torticollis. We all know what torticollis is, but this is one that comes and goes, lasting minutes, hours, or even days. You can have paroxysmal vertigo, okay? Once again, child generally around the ages of two to four suddenly begins walking, quote, like a drunken sailor, unquote. I can't tell you how often I've heard that description from, from parents. Okay, you, you know, investigate, you find no other uh, cause of it, you do find a family history of migraine generally, and once again, <coughs> migraine in general is a diagnosis of exclusion, and uh, so is paroxysmal vertigo. Um, Cyclic vomiting syndrome, okay, stereotyped episodes of vomiting. Uh, they generally last at least four hours. The range is one hour to five days. The onset's about three to five years. These are kids who vomit so severely that they will frequently end up in the emergency room needing IV fluids with each episode. But what's remarkable is that they occur at very regular intervals. And every individual has a different sort of of, of uh, interval range, but the parents usually get very good at predicting when the next episode is coming, and they'll say, yeah, we know the next one's going to be in uh, the third week of March. Okay, you can have abdominal migraine, generally characterized by dull midline abdominal pain. Once again, lasts you know, anywhere from hours to a few days, typically older childhood, seven to ten years old. Hemiplegic migraine, okay? As part of their aura, they develop uh, hemiplegia. It lasts anywhere from five minutes to 24 hours. They're both genetic and sporadic forms, 
And we now have uh, three genes identified. You can actually order a gene panel looking for these. Uh, onsets 11 to 13 years of age. You can have basilar migraine. Okay, you have this in adults too. Dysarthria, vertigo, tinnitus, all these things associated with, with, with the brainstem and cerebellum. Uh, hearing loss, diplopia, visual loss, and ataxia. Okay, once again, last five to 60 minutes. Generally, we don't see this until the child reaches uh, adolescence. And ophthalmoplegic migraine was always in the list with people with develop inability to move their uh, eyes appropriately. It's actually been reclassified and considered to be a neuralgia, i.e. a disorder of the, of the uh, uh, cranial nerves running to those muscles. Then we have this tension type headache. Okay, there's official criteria. Headache lasting from 30 minutes to seven days, need at least 10 episodes, has to be bilateral in nature, the quality of the pain has to be pressing and tightening and non-pulsating, which is a difficult history to get kids, the younger they are, uh, the worse it is to uh, distinguish between. But the intensity is not very severe, and uh, you should not have any nausea or vomiting, and you may have either photophobia or phonophobia, but you should not have both. The chronic daily headaches. Well, you can have the chronic versions of everything I just told you about. You can have chronic tension type headache, okay? Last hours or maybe continuous. Once again, bilateral location, same sort of, of qualities. Um, and interesting, may have tenderness when you palpate the skull. You can have medication overuse headache. Headache present on more than 15 days a month. Uh, regular overuse for more than three months of one or more drugs that can be taken for acute or symptomatic treatment of headache. And that the headache is supposedly to have worsened during this period of uh, medication overuse. Um, the final criteria is that it gets better if you stop those medications. So when you look at those medications, the worst are the opiates, and luckily we've pretty much, uh, the world has pretty much stopped using opiates for the treatment of headache pain. There's still a little bit going on in the adult world. Um, tryptin overuse, yes, you can get it from that. Um, NSAID overuse, yes, you can conceivably, but it's way less likely than it is to, you know, come from the other two classes of medication. Um, so the bottom line here, though, is that you have to overuse it for at least a few weeks, if not a few months. So if a person is having bad headaches, they can take their NSAID, their ibuprofen, you know, daily for a week or two, and you don't really have to worry about this. And then you have the chronic migraines. Okay, well, it's a headache fulfilling all the criteria, but it has to be more than 15 days a month for more than three months. Okay, so the majority of days each month for more than three months. And it can either be, you know, with or without migraine, although generally when it turns, with or without oral, although generally when it turns chronic, you begin losing a lot of the migraine uh, characteristics. And it come, becomes a lot more of a... Um, non-specific type of headache. And I'm finally going to mention new daily persistent headache. Okay, it's a headache that is daily and unremitting from the onset. 
or at least within three days of the onset. These are people that when you take the history say, yes, my headache began November 18th. I woke up with it. And it's been there 24-7 ever since. Um, bilateral location generally, once again, a non-pulsating quality. It's mild to moderate intensity, not aggravated by physical activity. Uh, not more than one of photophobia, phonophobia, or nausea, and has no severe nausea or any vomiting. So new daily persistent headache has many similarities to the chronic tension type headache. Okay, but is unique is that it's 24-7, right from the moment of onset. And uh, the people usually can give you that history. Okay, once again, if you've had medication overuse uh, in the recent, his, uh, recent past, you can't make this diagnosis. So, once we've said, okay, this patient meets one of these established primary headache types, we have no red flags, what are we gonna do next? And the goal, of course, is to treat it and decrease suffering and disability. So for the attention type headache, except in its most chronic and severe forms, which is actually pretty rare, you generally need no treatment between, beyond over-the-counter medicines. And the NSAIDs are the most commonly used. Okay, in the most severe chronic forms, once again, NSAIDs remain the basis of your treatment. You may find some benefit from some antidepressants, such as amitriptyline, botulinum toxin can be helpful. And in the end, many people end up treating it the same as chronic migraine, and that's partially because it's sometimes difficult to tell a chronic tension type headache from a chronic migraine. Overall, because it's not as severe and doesn't involve uh, so much disability, it's nowhere near as well studied as migraine treatment is. So that brings us to migraine itself. How are we gonna treat migraine? Well, if you have infrequent headaches, and most people consider that less than once a week, you treat symptomatically when the headache occurs. If you have frequent headaches, which is more than once a week, you try to prevent the headaches and you work on lifestyle changes as well. And you tend to treat with a daily preventative medication. Okay, now we come up to our second practice parameter from the uh, American Academy of Neurology. Okay, this one was published way back in 2004. So I don't know, it's only 13 years old. Um, it was a meta-analysis of 166 articles at the time. And what they found for acute migraine was that in children, acetaminophen worked pretty well. Okay, for those people whom acetaminophen didn't work, they, uh, they found evidence for ibuprofen at doses of either 7.5 or 10 milligrams per kilogram. And then finally, they looked at sumatriptan. Remember this being the early 2000s, the, the triptans were the new kids on the block. And they found uh, studies where it was used as young as age six, a variety of doses from five to 20 milligrams. And in the end, they said there was no data to support or refute the use of any oral triptans. And what was really interesting was at the time, people were still using a lot of subcutaneous sumatriptan and they found inadequate data uh, to evaluate that. So since 2004, several more triptans have shown some positive results in randomized double-blind placebo-controlled studies. 
Uh, remembering that tryptans are, act as agonists at, at these two subtypes of uh, serotonin receptors, which are located in both in blood vessels and nerve endings. Um, it's very interesting that it's those uh, receptors on the, uh, on the blood vessels that are very important. These agents all cause vasoconstriction. And without that vasoconstriction, they don't seem to work. Every, they've developed a couple of drugs that don't involve much vasoconstriction, and they find out that they're not very effective. Nobody ever got approved. Um, interestingly, only a few have any FDA indications for, um, for the pediatric population. Rizotriptan, approved for 6 to 17 years of age. Uh, Zolmetriptan, in the 12 to 17-year-old age group. And almatriptan, uh, similarly, in the 12 to 17-year age group. Um, and and uh, sumatriptan, uh, you know, has some evidence now uh, as well. Um, regardless, the entire class seems to be well-tolerated in pediatrics. And uh, people have... There's been difficulty establishing just what the proper doses are in pediatrics because, by and large, kids will tolerate the adult dosages. Finally, I want to mention the role of sleep in pediatric migraine. Sleep is beneficial to terminating an attack. And children need to less sleep in order to see the effect. So that a young child will frequently, if they get a migraine, just need to take a nap. And when they wake up from that nap after a couple hours, the headache's gone and they're completely back to normal. By the time you reach adolescence, you generally need a longer sleep, like a full night's sleep of eight hours before you wake up and you feel more or less back to normal. We adults suffer even more. Generally, one night of sleep may make us feel somewhat better, but it does not make us feel completely better. And adults typically need two or three nights worth of, of sleep before they uh, feel completely back to normal. And hence, they have multi-day uh, attacks. This benefit of sleep is so pronounced in children, I kind of consider it an additional criteria to support the diagnosis of migraine. If somebody goes, yeah, he's got this bad headache, he goes to sleep and he wakes up and he's back to normal, that really suggests migraine and not a mass lesion or some other type of secondary headache. What about emergency room treatments when people get really bad headaches and without anything else to do, they end up in our emergency room? Okay. Um, Ketorolac intravenously, turns out to be a mainstay of treatment. It's really kind of remarkable how well it works. Uh, I'm a big fan of metoclopramide as well. Um, it turns out that in the uh, old days, and it continues to this day, there was a regimen where they would use dihydroergonamine for rescue treatment of migraines, even in emergency rooms. But dihydroergonamine makes you vomit. Very frequent side effect. And in the old days, before we had odansetron and other such agents, metoclopramide was our mainstay anti-vomiting drug. And so there, this regimen evolved where they would give metoclopramide first, followed by uh, dihydroergonamine. And indeed, you have to pre-medicate for the metoclopramide, generally with diphenhydramine, because you want to avoid oculogyric crisis and other movement disorders. So you do that first, 
uh, usually orally, then you'd follow it up with intravenous uh, metoclopramide 30 minutes before the dihydroergotamine. But what was discovered in emergency rooms is that very frequently when they went back to give the dihydroergotamine, the patient would say, but my headache's already gone. So it does seem that metoclopramide has its own uh, ability to uh, abort migraine attacks, something that's not clear, that doesn't clearly happen with, for instance, odansetron. And so even though it has more uh, side effects, I tend to, you know, prefer it, because lots of times you don't need anything more than the metoclopramide and ketorolac, and that kind of uh, uh, ends things. Some people like to use compazine, and that can be very successful uh, as well. Other agents that get considered for use in the emergency room are uh, intravenous valproic acid, Depakon. Um, People have recommended uh, doses of both 500 and 1,000 milligrams. It's interesting that the uh, papers supporting the 500 milligram dose talk about the fact you have to give it extremely rapidly. So you kind of want to push it almost as fast as you can. You want to make sure it go goes in in about five minutes. Um, so it really seems to be related to whatever that peak level is that you achieve transiently as opposed to what your, your, your sustained level is uh, following treatment. Steroids, a lot of people give intravenous steroids in the emergency room. It's not clear that they're that effective, particularly that, that they're any more effective than giving a few days of oral steroids. Oral steroids can be very useful for breaking you know, severe migraine uh, attacks, and it's not clear that the intravenous ones offer you that much of an advantage. And finally, magnesium sulfate has been used uh, to break uh, migraine attacks. The, uh, we don't tend to do it as much in the, in the pediatric world as in the adult world. The problem with it is, you know, quite frankly, is that the dose you need causes a lot of GI disturbance and, and diarrhea following. What about preventative treatment? Okay. So once again, looking at this same uh, AAN parameter. So the calcium channel blocker flunarazine was listed as probably effective. Unfortunately, it's not available in this country. <laughs> okay. Uh, of the agents that, that there were papers uh, about, uh, of agents that were, used, that were available in this, uh, in this country, they found insufficient evidence regarding ciproheptadine, amitriptyline, uh, divalproic sodium, that's, you know, uh, Depakote, uh, topiramate, and even le levetiracetam. So insufficient evidence for all of them. They had a couple of papers on propranolol, and the evidence was conflicting. Uh, studies since then don't uh, help us only a little bit. For the most part, they've continued to provide only low-level evidence of efficacy for these agents through retrospective studies. Uh, Topiramate is probably the one exception, because remember we're talking about the mid-2000s, Topiramate is still under patent protection, so uh, Johnson and & Johnson and, and subsequently Janssen uh, provided a lot of support for these studies. And so there have been uh, several randomized, double-blinded, uh, placebo-controlled studies. There's been a little bit more evidence for proic acid and uh, propranolol, including one that compared those two agents. So let's take a look at topiramate. 
because A, there's more studies about it than anything else, and it kind of illustrates a lot of the difficulties we have in doing good research on headache prevention. So it, it be, began uh, with a study by Paul Winter back in 2005, where he wanted to look at the efficacy of topiramate in children ages 6 to 15. They enrolled a fairly decent number, they used a reasonable dose, but they only found a reduction from, from your baseline frequency of headaches of 2.6 migraine days per month. And when they compared it to placebo, placebo group had a reduction of 2.0 headache days you know, per, per month. And so this was not quite statistically significant and was not considered enough uh, support for it to go on. So the next paper that that group published, they looked at the three series of adults, ages range from 12 to 65, that had been used to get the approval of topiramate for migraine prevention in adults. And because they, those studies had included children as young as 12 or 13, they separated out the adolescents. And out of those 1,543, there were 51 adolescents. That wasn't a large enough number for the FDA to consider uh, extending the approval down that low. But when they looked at those 51, they found that the uh, 50 milligrams reduced the number of headache days per month by one, which was the same as placebo, but 100 milligrams decreased it by four per month, and 200 milligrams decreased it by five per month. Okay, once again, this is going back, looking at old studies, you know, pulling out that data, not enough to get your FDA approval. We then had a few more studies from other groups. Um, and this is just an interesting one at Lewis and Paradiso. It was only 14 children, 6 to 18 years, but they had basilar migraine. Okay? Once again, there was no placebo involved, not with those small numbers, certainly. But when, when they compared it to the person's regular headache rate, they did see a reduction of uh, number of monthly attacks. Another study by Lakshmi et al., 44 children, dose of 100 milligrams. The monthly frequency of headaches decreased from 16 or 4 per week to 4 or 1 per week. Okay, placebo only reduced the rate by about half. Okay, so what's so impressive about studies of migraine prevention are the high placebo response rates, typically 35 40%. Okay? And so why is that? Well, migraine tends to be a cyclical disorder. You go through good periods of time and bad periods of time. So some of the people you enroll into a study are already moving towards a good period of time, and it doesn't matter whether they get the study drug or whether they get the placebo. They're going to be moving into a good period of time anyway. But that really makes these studies very difficult to do. But all these Suggestive studies really culminated in a, in a uh, study by uh, Lewis and Winner in 2009. 106 children, they limited themselves to the adolescent age group because it seemed to be clearer that topiramate had an effect there. They used doses of 50 or 100 milligrams, and they found a 72% reduction in the monthly attack rate for 100 milligrams compared to a 44% reduction for, for placebo. Okay, if you looked at the responder rate, i.e., those people who had a 50 per, uh, 
an improvement of at least 50% in their attack rate. It was 83% for topiramate and only 43% for placebo. This was a pivotal study. It was enough for the FDA to extend the approval for topiramate uh, down to the age of 12. Okay. All right. So th that moves us up to the latest study. Okay, powers at all, the New England Journal of Medicine published this year, originally announced last uh, October at the Child Neurology Society. Multicenter NIH funded randomized uh, controlled trial with placebo. And interestingly, it compared to pyramate, amitriptyline, and placebo. They looked at ages 8 to 17. They included migraine, either with or without aura, or chronic migraine, i.e. more than 15 days a month, but without continuous headache to, to uh, you know, weed out things like medication overuse, headache, and new daily persistent headache. Uh, they require that you have four more headache days in a 28-day baseline period, and all these children had to exhibit at least mild, if not severe, disability on, on the PEDMIDAS, which is a measure of uh, instrument used to measure uh, disability due to migraine. They were randomized to either topiramate, amitriptyline, or control in a 2 to 2 to 1 ratio. And the, the, the randomization was stratified somewhat due to age. There was an eight-week period of dose escalation to reach your target of one milligram per kilogram per day of amitriptyline or two milligrams per kilogram per day of topiramate. And all medicines were divided BID, including the placebo, so that the patients had, you know, were unable to tell what they were getting. And then there was 16 weeks of constant dose treatment, i.e. four months. And in that last month of treatment, they would assess the outcome. And uh, in other words, the measurement took place after 12 weeks of, of uh, constant dosing. The primary outcome was looking at that 50% reduction in headache days. And secondary outcomes included you know, scores on the Piedmidas and absolute reduction in headache days. They did an interim analysis. And the primary outcome, which showed 50% reduction in attack rate, they showed 52% of the amitriptyline group, 55% of the topiramate group, and 61% of, of the placebo group. And the, when they looked at secondary outcomes, i.e. number of headache days per month, they found 6.7, suspiciously the same for both amitriptyline and topiramate, and, and 5.9 for placebo. Uh, so none of these agents was showing any sort of statistically significant difference uh, from the placebo. And this resulted in this multi-center, 30 some odd different centers participating, NIH-funded trial being terminated uh, early due to futility. So now what? Where does that leave us? We have one study that's so convincing that the FDA grants approval. And then we have a subsequent you know, study eight years later that suggests that it doesn't work. Believe me. I've had a lot of trouble in clinic trying to tell parents, trying to explain this to parents. 
On the other hand, it really does illustrate the difficulties of doing these studies in children and what it means to have a high placebo response rate and how difficult it is then to demonstrate the efficacy of any drug. The, the placebo response rate here was 61%. Now that's more than what most other migraine prevention studies have shown, which are typically in the 35 to 40% range. Um, you know, so was there something special about how they enroll patients in the study? I don't have any question about the statistics. This study was, if anything, way over thought in terms of statistics and demonstrating that they had adequate power and enlisting some, uh, some of the uh, best statisticians and epidemiologists ahead of time to make sure that there would be no difficulties, you know, with that. Um, on the other hand, you know, are we asking the right question? What was... What's been so amazing to me is this study has come out, and I would have thought that the letters to the editor would be flying back and forth and everything else. There's been like two, two subsequent publications mentioning this study, one from the group itself talking about what a great study they had just done, <laughs> and, and the other person who did uh, bring up a few points about the study, including the fact that the uh, responder rate, this 50% reduction, is perhaps one of the cruder um, measurements that, that one can use. Um, yes? You know, there's some interesting stuff about placebos that's come out in the last two years. Mm -hmm. It's clear that people do get benefit from placebos. It just often doesn't last as long as the therapeutic. But it seems like someone should have done a trial of no therapy to placebo. Right. Or you should start prescribing Yes. So, a, a couple words about that. I think there is a problem here, is that we probably haven't adequately described the natural history of migraine in children. And as I mentioned before, it's a cyclical disorder. And it may be hard to describe it because I think the, the lengths of those cycles are different in different individuals. I think it's a problem because depending on just how you go about enrolling, do you get people early in that cycle? middle of that cycle, late in that cycle. The fact that they had such a high placebo response rate suggests to me that there was something about how they were recruiting that got people closer to the end of their cycle as opposed to the beginning of their cycle. And so, you know, if I was going to redesign the cycle, I would be interested in, in enrolling people within X number of months of when their frequent headaches, you know, began. And that might help and a few of the old papers did actually do that. Um, they wanted people within two months of when their, their headaches achieved the necessary frequency. Um, but I think these are, 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 you know, part of the issues that we have to deal with here. And in the end, I kind of look at this, we have one good study that shows efficacy, we have one good study that doesn't show efficacy, um, and we're still kind of, you know, up in the air. It's interesting that the 2004 AAN protocol has for the last several years, when you look it up, have a little notation currently under review. And up until, you know, last fall, I was expecting that when it finally came out, they would say that topiramate was either going to be possibly effective or probably effective. Now I think this, this latest study has just thrown everything into disarray, and they're going to be thinking that this you know, review that's under, been underway for the last few years is going to take them another couple of years. Okay, 
But maybe if we're not so sure that either of these medicines do anything, we're going to be more interested in things like nutraceuticals. Okay? So there are a few that are maybe worth trying. There's riboflavin, studying doses of 40 to 400 milligrams. 200 to 400 seems to work best. You divide it BID, particularly for children eight years and above. Coenzyme Q, there's a study suggesting efficacy at 100 milligrams per day, using above the age of three. The herb Butterbur was uh, very popular for a time. It's no longer recommended due to toxicity. Feverfew is another herb that's been uh, studied and may have some benefits. It's still uh, you know, on the list of things you might want to try. Magnesium salts, once again, GI side effects, but uh, there are papers suggesting it's beneficial. Vitamin D may also be uh, beneficial. When it comes to the treatment of chronic daily headaches, there's even less evidence to guide anything. In general, everybody just tries the preventative drugs. Triptans in this group of people don't seem to offer much benefit. People will tell you that if their headache gets really severe, they'll take a dose of a triptan, and it may take the edge off of it a little bit, but it certainly doesn't abort the attack the way it does an episodic migraine. Um, the bad chronic tension type headaches, we try to treat, treat the same way as we do chronic migraine. The medication overuse headaches, um, withdrawal of analgesics really seems to be the only thing that works, and when you do that, you usually substitute a preventative. And new daily persistent headache tends to be resistant to anything you do. And that's perhaps one of the most important things about recognizing this type. Doesn't mean we don't try. We always try. We usually use the chronic migraine drugs. But it helps you shape expectations that it just may not work. The natural history of this disorder is that it, most of the time it lasts somewhere between six months and two years and then just kind of resolves spontaneously. So to summarize, headache is common in the pediatric population. Distinguishing primary from secondary headache is a critical first step. Imaging is of limited use unless there are red flags. There's good evidence supporting the, the, the use of acetaminophen and ibuprofen and some tryptans in the treatment of acute episodic migraine. And the use of preventative medication for frequent mi migraine is supported mostly by expert opinion and somewhat by conflicting uh, studies. One final word, cognitive behavioral therapy, okay? Recent paper about this, okay? They were looking at it for chronic daily headache, more than 15 headaches per month. And they randomized people to either amitriptyline plus CBT or just amitriptyline plus headache education, 20 weeks of either. At the end, 47% of the CBT had their chronic daily he headache reduced to uh, less than one uh, day a week i.e. no longer needing uh, preventative medication, compared to only 20% of the education group. If only CBT were easier to, to get for patients. Okay, and that's the end. Yes? If the migraines ever get better, they, 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 like, right. the senses make it worse. Yeah, it's, it's a cyclical disorder. I mean, you go through good periods of time and bad periods of time. And it's highly variable. Um, you know, your good periods can last months, it can last years, it can last decades. 
Um, so it's very hard to, you know, to predict. And one way to look at this whole preventative treatment is you're trying to suppress the headaches for a period of time so that the body enters a good period. So generally, when we're successful at suppressing the headaches, we wait three to six months and we withdraw the agent and say, it's fine, you know, you don't need it now, wait until the next bad period arrives. What is interesting is once you've found something that seems to work for a person, when, after, when their good period then turns into a bad period, you can go back to that same agent and, they, and they, it generally it works again for them, which makes me really suspect that these agents are working despite the conflicting results from, from, from our high quality studies. Or if they work the first time, they really believe it's going to work the second time. <laughs> Possibly. You know, you asked about maybe we should be treating people with placebo, and actually there's a paper out about that in, in the treatment of pediatric migraine. Um, in many ways, Neurontin is my favorite placebo. <laughs> and I mean, it's useful for diabetic and, and other neuralgic pains, but it's not very useful for, for headaches or, or, or seizures, in, at least in my hands. And if a placebo works so well, you, I would think that Neurontin would work well. And I just don't have anywhere near the success rate with that that I have with, with the actual medicines. Now, maybe it's my belief. Maybe I don't sell it well enough to the patient. But, um, you know, that's my observation. Yes? We've all uh, gone through periods of being disillusioned by uh, research influenced by drug companies. Can you assure me that Winner, who did studies on how can you doubt somebody who's employed by the Palm Beach Headache Center? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, you know, J and J, and and you know, subsequently Janssen. Um, I will say this about them. They sponsored a study in topiramate in very young children. Okay? <coughs> yes. It showed lack of efficacy in kind of the under two-year population. They went right ahead and published that result. Um, so for what it's worth, though, I have to plead guilty. The the. Uh, headquarters for J&J &J is in New Brunswick, New Jersey, the same place that Robert Wood Johnson Medical School <laughs> is. Uh, but, uh, you know, despite that, I think J&J, &J, by and large, uh, has acted ethically in its sponsored research of, of topiramate. Um, Jan, I have one comment and one question. Um, it regards the to the neuroimaging studies, um, I've always had a problem with some of those studies because they take your patient population to image them and find a three to four percent uh, rate of abnormalities that required intervention. I think if you took my patient population in primary care of kids with headaches and imaged them, I just I think our denominators are so different that I wonder if it would be equivalent or the same. Yeah, no. I mean, I, I agree. I sit in a unique position because I, I have a whole host of, of primary care providers doing a lot of the screening, you know, for me. Um, I just look at those numbers as they're published and say, that's not such a bad rate <laughs> um, for a test, especially if you're doing MRIs, which in the, you know, above the age of 8 or 10 doesn't, even, doesn't need sedation. 
It, it, Although it, I still worry that if I started doing it in my patient population, I'd find tons of things that made no clinical difference whatsoever, but we would get worried about <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and have to do something about. No. Um, and then my question, actually, given that our allopathic approach seems to have mixed efficacy according to the literature, can you talk about any of the other complementary, whether or not it's chiropractic, dietary manipulation, everybody and their brother is on my relief right now, um, Biofeedback. Right. So, so, so my relief is interesting because it combines three of those nutraceuticals into one pill, and they all have ev evidence, some evidence of, of efficacy. And I prefer that one to many of the other pills that are out there for no other reason than they actually have a pediatric-sized pill and an adult-sized pill. Um, you know, having said that, I've had a lot of patients over the years go to chiropractors, uh, you know, go for acupuncture, acupressure, whatever, and I always hope that it's going to work, and very rarely <laughs> do they ever come back or, uh, and say, hey, I got benefit, you know, any significant, you know, benefit out of this. Um, and... Uh, you know, there's always a danger that maybe they got such benefit that they never came back, I, I suppose. But, uh, you know, the many patients, it's surprising when they do find something that works. We'll keep that next appointment with neurology to let them know that it works. Um, and I'm always surprised. It's kind of like, what, you haven't had any headaches for, <laughs> and now you're back. But, um, but they do. And, and once again, uh, you know, it's anecdotal from my own observations, but I just haven't seen much, you know, benefit. Is it your inclination, uh, given these rather uh, unsatisfying uh, findings based on uh, the state of, of, of the science in headache uh, analysis, is it your inclination that some of the brain uh, work, the cognitive neurosciences and other areas are going to reveal uh, better principles by which we can get better data in terms of prevention and treatment? I'm not certain. Well, you know, there's been a great deal of discussion in the world of neuroscience about basic science research and how much, how difficult it is to repeat many of the, of the findings that are being reported, uh, you know, nowadays. And actually, at, at some of the uh, neuroscience, you know, some of the various professional societies, this is actually a topic of discussion and and how to address it. Um, we think that there are, are defects in how we train people who at least do the basic science part of it, and uh, and that then that extends to the people who then review the articles, and the articles are not getting the rigorous review they should before they're, they're um, you know, getting published. On the um, clinical side of things, as well, headache has been interesting in and of itself in that the American Headache Society has published a series of guidelines about how they think you know, research should be conducted. And indeed, they were very careful to adhere to all these things in that latest study that I told you, you folks about. But by the same token, there may be problems in that outline. <laughs> yes, a bunch of smart people got together and said this is the way we think it should be done, but we may actually be going, you know, being led down the garden path and, and you know, missing some important aspect by everybody, you know, just following basically the same sort of, of, of outcome measures. Uh, 
So they got that published, though, that negative. Yeah. 